Welcome to Canada's History Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Kessler. Today I'm speaking with Eric Zweig, author of Fever Season, a novel for teens about the 1919 Spanish flu, including how it killed Joe Hall. Hall was a defenseman for the Montreal Canadiens who died as a result of the flu. Today, Eric and I discuss the life of bad Joe Hall. So, uh, first of all, Eric, where did Joe Hall get his start playing hockey, and what was his amateur career like? Well, it's interesting that you asked about his start, and you often see it written and said that he started playing junior hockey in Winnipeg. He was born in England but grew up in Winnipeg. I've never actually found, and I don't know if anybody else has, any anything in any old newspapers to actually show him playing junior hockey in Winnipeg. He was certainly playing intermediate hockey in uh, Brandon, Manitoba, by about 1900. But I often see records listing that he played uh, junior hockey in Winnipeg in 1897 or so, but he really sort of comes on the radar in, in Brandon as an intermediate in 1900. Okay, so what type of player was Joe Hall? Like, what was his style of play? <laughs> well, as people probably know, if they know anything about Joe Hall, they know the name Bad Joe Hall. Um, and it wasn't bad in any kind of ironic way. <laughs> Not that he was a bad player. He was more a bad-tempered player. Um, later in his career, and, and certainly after he, he died, which I'm guessing to say now doesn't give anything away in the story, uh, people would say that his reputation was, was for, for mayhem was, was more than, than the actual true story. Uh, apparently, you know, he'd been a pretty tough customer as a young guy. He describes himself, I have a clip where he says, well, I'm one of those fellows able to take care of him if anybody starts anything, but I don't think I'm as bad as I'm painted. Uh, but in his young career, he... he he had a real reputation as, as a troublemaker, as a tough guy. Uh, it's not much clear if it's fighting so much as really dirty play. Uh, there are some, Dan Mason, I believe, is somebody who wrote a, a PhD thesis on the International Hockey League, and he sort of claims that it wasn't so much that he was dirty, but he had a, he had a, you know, he had a quick temper and, and would say things to people he shouldn't. Like, he'd be... He'd be heard swearing by people in the audience at a time when this was, you know, considered shocking to hear people use that kind of language. So I think that actually had a base in his reputation. It wasn't so much that he was violent, but that he was quick-tempered and wasn't afraid to share it. Though certainly he gets involved. And if anybody reads anything about hockey in this era, it was an incredibly violent game. A lot of stick swinging and club people with their sticks. And, and Hall certainly had his incidents uh, uh, like that. Everybody later in his career would say that because he now had this reputation as a tough guy, people would come after him. You know, like if you wanted to prove yourself as a tough player, you'd take a shot at, at Joe Hall, and he, he, would, you know, he wouldn't back down. So there's everybody says later in his career that you know, he wanted to sort of play cleaner and, and, and clean up his reputation, but he was always forced to take on you know, the, young, young, the new young tough guy, and so he never really lived down his reputation for, for violence. So then perhaps I guess you could say that Joe Hall was hockey's first enforcer or one of the first? Yeah, certainly enforcers. one of the first. As I say, hockey was a pretty tough game in those days, but he, 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 he would certainly be, the, I would think, the first guy who really had a reputation as a great player who could also beat the crap out of you if he had to. But Hall was also like a talented player. He was, yeah. He was, I mean, in, in his early career, he was a, a pretty high-scoring forward. Later in his career, he, he played defense and was always considered one of the best in the game wherever he played. I mean, it's sort of like 
except that, you know, I don't know if it's really fair to Chris Pronger, but it would be sort of like Chris Pronger, you know, a great defense, as opposed to, say, Nicholas Lidstrom, a great defenseman who was, or Eddie Shore, but that much earlier, uh, a, a tough defenseman, uh, a very skilled defenseman, but a guy who played a real, you know, mean edge to his game. Okay, so there are a few whispers um, when Hall was playing amateur hockey that he was be- being paid to play. Why, uh, what do you think of those rumors, and why do you think it was such a big issue at the time that he was being paid to play hockey? Well, it's interesting about that. I mean, I, I've never actually heard those rumors about him, though I, I don't doubt it. Um, it. It would come up a lot that people were being paid to play, especially out west. I think they had a, a more liberal view of that than some of the people in the east. Uh, and he was still playing out in, in Manitoba, and this would have happened. Um, there were a lot of people in Canada uh, who, who believed all, all athletes should be amateurs. I mean, the way they were in England, it was a real, you know, king and country sort of issue. In England, you know, the athletes are all amateurs, and we should be, you know, sports for sports sake was what these people would say. And, and the, the, the leaders of the Ontario Hockey Association were very staunch defenders of amateurism and, and would kick people out of the league for even the hint of, of taking money. So they were quick to abuse people, I think, if they wanted to get rid of them. Um, and in Manitoba, as I say, they, they, were, they were more willing to you know, slide you a few dollars on the table to, to ensure they would have the best players. But it, it's a strange issue, and it, it seems so important to some people. But then there'd be others who would say that, you know, it's unfair to expect these athletes, uh, they would make the point specifically as compared to England, that in England where they had a, a bigger leisure class and, you know, not so much royals, but titled titled people who, 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 you know, had family money and didn't have to work, these were the real athletes in England and in North America and Canada more like they were doing it in the United States, you know, people didn't have those kind of lifestyles. And the people who were playing sports, hockey and football and baseball, were giving up their time and and did have to, if they were really going to become good at the game, and, and, you know, people are paying now to see them, so why shouldn't they get their share of the gate receipts? If they're going to take the time to really develop into top-notch players, they can't. It's the same argument you hear now, except that now they're making so many millions of dollars, it's hard to relate anymore. You know, it's a short career. They're taking away opportunities from themselves to advance their their to to advance an off ice career. Everybody had a job because hockey, you know, didn't pay you a, a living wage. But you know, they had to take time off from their job to play these sports, and so people felt it. The people who believed it was fair to pay them really thought, you know, we're we're taking advantage of them if we're not paying them. But it was a real a real split. Um, it's hard to think of anything in modern hockey that, that, that comes to it. I mean, it's, it's almost similar to, you know, like the old school people saying, well, you know, fighting is part of the game and it's always been part of the game. And, and other people saying, well, you know, we have to change. It was sort of a similar issue with money. You know, we have to pay them or we don't. And it real, it was a real divide in the way people thought about things. So eventually Hall did decide that he wanted to become a legitimate professional. So what path did he take to becoming a professional hockey player? Yeah, there was. It's, it's interesting again because you know it's, it happens in the United States where they had more of the you know capitalist mentality that they they still have down there. The first professional hockey league, openly professional, were was based in Northern Michigan. There was a team in 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 Ontario as well, but the International Hockey League, which had teams in in small towns in Michigan, a, a team in Pittsburgh where where hockey had gone professional quite early, and uh, I guess it's around 1905, 1906. Joe Hall. Uh, accepts an offer from the team in Houghton, Michigan. Houghton is a small but growing 
uh, copper mining town in the northern peninsula in Michigan. They're they're sort of throwing money at people. It's it's a way to you know entertain the miners, uh, let people you know, people give people something to to gamble on, spend their money, have a good time. So Houghton is really the first city to to openly pay players and bring them down, mostly Canadian hockey amateur players. And uh, I actually have a neat story that was in a it's undated in Joe Hall's scrapbook in the Hockey Hall of Fame. A really neat story about you know his his friends in Brandon sort of gathering at the train station to see him off. And they, they certainly don't seem to uh, begrudge the fact that he's going down south to, to play, to, to be paid to play. So uh, that's how he, you know, got involved in professional hockey. So then what other teams did he go on to play for after that? Well, it's in Houghton, I think, where he really gets the reputation for, for his violent play. The, the league in Michigan, or in well, this, this American International Hockey League was considered quite violent by Canadians. Uh, I don't know, you know, it's impossible to know anymore. You know, there's no footage of these things. How much of that was really true, and how much of that was these defenders of amateurism in in Ontario and in Canada saying, "Wow, look at how violent and terrible that league is." That's what happened. You pay people. But he came back after a couple of years. The league collapsed, uh, uh, an economic uh, recession, sort of the first pro hockey league. He comes back to play in Manitoba with a team in Winnipeg and gets kicked out of the league after after a pretty nasty stick-swinging incident. And for a few years after that, he bounces around quite a bit. He, he goes to Montreal. He plays for a couple of teams. Uh, but he's, he's sort of he, – he, it's in a tough time in his career, it seems. It takes until real 1911. He signs in Quebec, I think, in 1910. And by the 1911 season, he's kind of bounced back as a as a real true star defenseman helps uh, Quebec win the Stanley Cup in the 1911-12 and 1912-13 season and really now it started to make their reputation again as a you know a tough but not as dirty as we thought and really talented hockey player. So then eventually Hall found his way to the Montreal Canadiens and of course Hall is well known because of his death in 1919 from the Spanish flu which is something you actually wrote a book about. So what were his last few days like from the time that he left the fifth game of the Stanley Cup final uh, up until his death? Well, the, the Spanish flu, the, the influenza epidemic from 1918-1919 is – when you read about the, the way people died, it's really quite ghastly. I mean, basically – I mean, they call it a flu, and I, you know, I don't know if medically, but it, it seems to have been a, a lot more violent than most flus. And it really – it attacked healthy people and, and young and, – and I think that you know older people and younger people – it's unclear to me really how this happened, but it really seemed to attack people in the prime of sort of 20 to 40 years old. Joe Hall was in his late 30s by this time. But it really sort of destroyed your lungs, made breathing very difficult. Um, you'd get a lot of blood and fluid in your lungs. And you hear stories about people's skin literally you know, turning blue the way they would when you, when you, you can't get enough oxygen. Um, they talk about some people being just becoming such a dark color that you couldn't really tell anymore if they'd been white people or black people, um, bleeding out of their eyes, bleeding out of their nose and ears. I mean, it really sounds horrible. I don't imagine his death was quite as nasty as that, um, though, it, you know, it proceeded pretty quickly. He, you know, after the fifth game, but it's only about five or six days, and he's, he's running a really high fever. They're moving him from, you know, his hotel in Seattle where the Montreal Canadiens were playing the Stanley Cup to one hospital and then to a more specialized hospital. 
And, you know, there's bulletins in the paper sort of every day reporting on his condition, and it's getting worse and worse, and I'm sure it was not a pleasant way to go. So then, as you said, he did pass away. So what kind of reputation did Hall leave behind him? I mean, he's such a been described as such a scrappy player, and yet he was one of the first players that were inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. So what kind of legacy did he leave? Plus, when at the, around that time, you know, I think that Cyclone Taylor, who had played with him in Houghton, was probably instrumental in getting him into the Hockey Hall of Fame. He was, he was uh, on the selection committee in those days. And I've read, I think, in, in, in the late 60s, Stan Fischler, the hockey writer, went around interviewing old-time players uh, and, and has an interesting uh, interview with, with Joe Malone, who was a classy star forward with the Quebec Bulldogs and a teammate of Joe Hall's. And those two really talked about how his reputation was was overblown, how he wasn't as bad as people said. Um, but I think anybody who knows Joe Hall now knows the name, just knows the name Bad Joe Hall and pictures this sort of quintessential hockey goon, which is probably a little unfair, though certainly he was a, he was a tough guy in his day. Okay, Eric, so this is your moment to uh, put a little plug in here. So can you tell us about Fever Season, uh, your book that you wrote? Fever Season is a novel that I wrote. It's actually for younger readers, you know, sort of 12 to 14-year-old boys. But I think, I think uh, you know, people wouldn't tell me they didn't like it. But the grown-ups that I know who, who've read it have enjoyed it. It's, it's a non-fiction, or it is fiction. It's a, it's a story about a, a boy in Montreal dealing with sort of the, the influenza epidemic and his family. 